My name is Esperanza Quintero. I am a miner's wife. Eighteen years my husband has given to that mine, living half his life with dynamite and darkness. You're all in one piece, so what's the beat? This new rule of yours that we work alone. We're taking it up with a super. Super's the one made the rule. He ain't gonna give you no help. They don't work alone in other mines. Well, why should I risk my life? Because I'm a Mexican? Accidents are costly to everyone. Tell the man to get back to work. They don't work for me. I work for them. And so it began. The mine owners might have starved us out, were it not for the help we got from our international endeavors. Letters came, the crumpled dollar bills of working men. The bosses have us coming and going. If you read the court injunction carefully, you will see that the only prohibits striking miners from picketing. We women are not striking miners. We will take over your picket line. We have a solution, you have none. I've had these kids all day. I've had them since the day they were born. about labor issues i thought an interesting way to do it um actually first chris um you had some ideas on what points we should touch on talking about labor issues and then um after we you know list those points i wanted to kind of look at it through the paradigm of you know different jobs that since we, we live in, in, in a society where a lot of the jobs are service and a lot of the jobs, you move from job to job. There's not a lot of job permanence in the world right now. So a lot of us have had different types of jobs. And some of those jobs have had unions. You, we, some of us may not have even known that there was a union at our job when we were working there. Um, and some of the jobs are professional that we might have had. Some of them are service. So kind of maybe I don't know if different laws apply to agitating in those different spaces and different strategies apply. So kind of getting into labor law with that kind of mindset of different types of occupation. Well, um, the the labor law, uh, labor law of the land is is known as the National Labor Relations Act, and it was passed in two stages. Essentially, it was passed in 1930. 435 during the FDR administration. And it was known as the Wagner Act. And then it was amended 
after the Second World War in what ended up being a kind of right right wing what they consider a correction of the Wagner Act called the Taft-Hartley Act. So the Wagner Act and the Taft-Hartley Act combined are what formed the basic uh, framework of, of labor law. Um, because of the culture of uh, unionization being suppressed and because of the uh, diminished uh, what's called union density, meaning simply that most people don't belong to unions, union density peaked in about 1965 or so, where, where one quarter of the uh, non-public uh, workforce was unionized. And ever since then, it's, it's diminished. And now it's, uh, now it's probably around 10% of the private workforce is unionized. So we don't have the same touchstones in our culture um, uh, that we're aware of uh, our rights under uh, National Labor Relations Act. So National Labor Relations Act has a set of workers' rights, which is um, intended to guarantee people the right to organize unions. What a lot of people don't uh, know is that the union does not have to be an AFL-CIO pre-existing organization. A union is considered any group of people who join together for mutual self-help. So we can form a union, for example, in Portland, Oregon, the people at uh, Voodoo Donuts Coffee Shop formed a union. And they uh, were successful for a time. I don't know if they're still unionized or not, but it was it made national uh, news because it was formed by a intensely local, and they ended up affiliating with the uh, Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, the anarcho-syndicalist union from the early uh, 20th century. So any group of workers, if they join together for uh, mutual self-help, uh, have a certain amount of rights. And I want to describe two things, if I may, and that's the traditional a method of labor organizing, in, in, uh, which is the uh, NLRB election. And the second one is the corporate campaign. Okay. So in an NLRB election, uh, a bunch of people work at, um, you know, Joe's Warehouse. And there's 30 people there. And 20 of them decide that they want to form a union. Those 20 people can take a petition and sign it, or they can hand out uh, cards, signature cards, and have workers sign it. And the card or the petition will say, "We we wish to form a labor organization. We're the we're the Joe's Warehouse Workers Association." They can go down to the regional NLRB office down on Adams and Wells in Chicago and turn in that petition, and uh, they'll give it a case number. And the NLRB will um, check to see if the people that signed it, you know, really signed it. And uh, if, if that's called a showing of interest, and if there's enough people that show interest in having a union, the NLRB will come out and have an election. Now, that's the simple statement of it. The reality of it is that it's incredibly difficult because management when management hears that people are unionizing, management may very well 
find pretexts to terminate people. Management may give presentations about how it's a bad idea to join a union. Management may hire a bunch of people that hate unions. Uh, management can react to it in a number of different ways. So, so as a practical matter, what unions do, even though the NLRB only requires that maybe 40% of the people show interest in a union to hold an election, uh, unions won't do it until they have 80 or 90% of the people signed up in a given workplace. So as an example, um, a friend of mine was trying to organize, uh, here in Chicago, we have a local brewery uh, called Goose Island. Now, probably most people don't inquire as to the corporate status of Goose Island, but the fact is Goose Island is owned by Anheuser-Busch. It's mm. not a local independent brewery. It's a I big, see. huge corporate brewery and they were being organized by the Teamsters Union. And as the organization drive went on, uh, Goose Island would have meetings and Goose Island would explain how if the union was voted in, then, you know, you wouldn't be able to make your own agreement with the employer. You would be bound to the union's agreement. And you would somehow lose some type of individual expression or freedom by joining the union. And then Goose Island offered people bonuses uh, and ostensibly related to COVID, but it was actually uh, a uh, enticement to not vote for the union. Mm -hmm. A bribe, basically. A bribe, basically, not to join the union. So let's talk real briefly about a thing called an unfair labor practice, a ULP. So unfair labor practice is a violation of your rights under $10 lawyer talk here under Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act. It says people cannot threaten you, nor can they bribe you not to join a union, but they have to balance that with the speech rights of the employer. The employer can make you sit there and listen to their anti-union stuff. So when you are um given those um, threats or 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 enticements or whatever you have the right to go to the NLRB fire on uh, file unfair labor practice charge mm. similarly if you are demoted if you are fired classically uh union adherents tend to get fired in this case study we're talking about at Goose Island all of the people who showed interest in the union at the first company meeting somehow just managed to have disciplinary issues huh. you know, over the next six months. So by at the end of six or eight months, all the union adherents were gone. What a coincidence. Now, and we need to mention that uh, Teamsters uh, Local 705 was maybe not as supportive of, of them after they were terminated as they could have been. But they nevertheless can file their own unfair labor practice charge. So, so the good news is, uh, again, it's an administrative agency. You don't need an attorney to go to the NLRB. You don't need an attorney to form a labor union or to attempt to form a labor union. You don't need an attorney to uh, file unfair labor practice. So to have activism at that rank and file level is what's critical to building union density and building union density is what's critical to having a uh, response, responsive political uh, structure uh, to do that. So, uh, so that's the classic way is the NLRB election. 
Now, beginning about 30 years ago, there was a strike in uh, the meatpacking industry in the upper Midwest in Iowa and Minnesota called the Hormel strike. And you know Hormel because you, you love spam and you love their, their chili. <laughs> the chili. They got, the they dirt got, chili. They got spam and they got those little Vienna weenies and stuff mm -hmm. in the can. Sometimes so, I just take them out, open them up, spread it around on the floor, and I just roll around. So, so Hormel has this great stuff. Hormel had a, a national strike. Uh, Hormel workers were members of the United Food and Commercial Workers. As we were discussing earlier, some of our grocery store workers are in Chicago here. And they went on a national campaign where they use media and they'd say, we're going to take a, a, a page from management's playbook where management uses consultants, management uses media, management uses presentations. We're going to make presentations all over the country to politicize and to publicized union and and the Hormel strike was the first real big national corporate campaign. So now when you have strikes, everyone knows about Amazon uh, mm -hmm. in Alabama. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows about now there's a there's a coal miner strike in Alabama. Everybody knows about Topeka, Kansas, where they just settled the uh BCT, the Bakery, Confectionery, and Tobacco Workers Union, just settled uh, in, against Frito Lay, uh, the 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 Tostito Makers uh, right. Union. So, but the largest uh, uh, proponent of the corporate campaign in America today is the SEIU, mm. and a, a person that I uh, uh, had the privilege of working with for a brief time. Uh, who was president of Local 73 of the SEIU, Tom Balanoff, uh, was instrumental in uh, using a corporate campaign. Because what happened in the Reagan era, in the Reagan era, let's remember Reagan won two elections and then George H.W. Uh, Bush won another. So we had 12 years of Republican. And we got many, many bad legal decisions against uh, workers' rights at the NLRB. So SEIU said, well, forget the NLRB. It's actually easier and less lawyers and less time spent litigating to shame uh, owners, mm. to find out where owners live, to find board members, like board of directors and where they live. So they found things in hospitals on the South Side where there were board directors who were affiliated with local politicians. And they made the case that they were unfair to labor, you know. So it was and a more militant approach. It, it was a it was a bottom up approach, and and it also, but it did take advantage of one thing uh, under the NLRB is you can picket an employer for unfair labor practice without the um, without the necessity of of, uh, of having a strike vote and uh, being organized. So you can have informational picketing at any employer. So at Goose Island right now, after they fired all these people. They could stand out in front of Goose Island, picket, and be legal, lawfully protected from uh, from arrest and harassment. Um, although they might get it anyway, but they would certainly be uh, that would be a right that could be vindicated. So the point is, the corporate campaign asks for voluntary recognition of the union. You go to the employer, mm -hmm. you say, "We're asking you to voluntarily recognize the union," and if you don't. You know, we're going to start a boycott. 
We're going to tell people don't go to Goose Island. We're going to tell people don't go to Joe's Warehouse or don't go to Voodoo Donuts mm-hmm. or whatever it is. So that is the people-powered campaign as opposed to the lawyer-powered mm-hmm. older model, which is the NLRB. But you, you still may need you know all of the above. Mm-hmm. kind of strategy but i think that people who are fi- fired in retaliation for um um organizing and non-union employers i think every one of them should file a, a ulp on fair labor practice i think that should be the go-to for any person who's fired unfairly and uh that's just one of the administrative remedies um out there that can help you, uh, you know, vex, mm-hmm. uh, vex your employer. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, how do you, this is, you use the word unfairly. And I, I guess, can we, cause that, you know, people think that something is unfair. doesn't necessarily mean unfair. It's a very technical sort of idea of an unfair firing, right? You mean in the legal, so what specifically in the legal sense? would you say would, would fall under that? If you were to, if if three employees were to go to management and say we we want break time to be twenty minutes long instead of ten minutes long, that's concerted activity. So, Labor Act, National Labor Relations Act, has a very broad definition of a labor organization, and it has a very broad definition of concerted activity. So if you if you went and you said you know um, we want uh, a vegan uh, option in the lunchroom you know we don't eat hot dogs in the lunchroom all day and then a week later um, the three people were fired for it that's concerted activity so what has happened over the past uh, fifty years since the passage of Title Seven is there's kind of a reflexive um, go to when your employer when you have a dispute with an employer you get fired there's kind of a reflexive go to title 7 and title 7 protects people under race color national origin religion or sex those are the five original protected bases uh, for the civil rights law of the United States as passed in that, 1965. That's more employment, though. That's employment, that, right. That's employment right. law. It's not labor, right? Right. So I'm trying to, the, right. the unfair so people, here, I'm trying to just tease out what the unfair would be within a labor. Um, the, the unfair con, would. You know, construct. So so one thing I, I want to ask is, so if it's a retaliatory action by the employer and it's based on two or is it three how many people yeah, does it have to be, to be concerted activity. it's concerted it, activity so it could be so as two long as people. it's two two people so so basically it cannot be one person so as long as two people go to the employer with some concern about the, the working conditions and there is a retaliatory action based on that then that is an unfair uh firing or termination yeah because you got to have two people to be in concert right so the term used is concerted activity mm. so so a protected protected uh, activity under Section 7 of the NLRA is, is any people for working conditions, rate of pay. Uh, again, it could be what, what's in the vending machine in the lunchroom. It could be any um, concerted activity. Uh, and any group of people that do that it, it are considered a labor organization too. Interesting. So it's a very broad. But you don't need to be definition. in a proper union. No, you to, don't to, need to be in an AFL-CIO union. CIO union. 
IWW has always had a few um, uh, locals in various industries that have been on and off, you know, around for 80 years. And uh, most recently, Voodoo Donuts. And there's there's a very interesting um, interviews with the, the IWW organizer on the West Coast there that organized Voodoo Donuts. And another one we want to talk about, if we were getting really deep uh, historically, is there's a number of unions that were uh, left-wing unions that were expelled from the AFL-CIO. And one of them is the United Electrical Union. The United Electrical Union is where we go have meetings in Chicago. There's a there's a oh, thing yeah. called the UE Hall. Yeah. The UE Hall was one of the, I believe it's five uh, unions that were famously uh, kicked out of the uh, AFL-CIO when their leadership refused to sign uh, anti, uh, anti-communist and anti-socialist uh, oaths under, uh, uh, under the AFL's uh, uh, constitution or bylaws. So the other one uh, that comes to mind is the Western Federation of Miners, and they were expelled from the AFL-CIO, and they were the union that made a, a famous movie made by blacklisted uh, people from Hollywood called The Salt of the Earth. So The Salt of the Earth was a movie made by a labor union in the 1950s, right in the, in the midst of McCarthyism that uh, showed uh, Anglo and Latino workers uniting and men and women uniting and covered. Uh, it's interesting because it covered the whole intersectional debate, you know, over 60 years ago and stuff. It's really fascinating. If you haven't seen the salt of the earth, everybody should, should watch that. Nice. Um, so that is, you want to jump in on something here? Yeah. I was just going to bring it kind of, um, to an example to clear up something. So, um, while I was, uh, in college, I worked at Walmart and I remember one time, um, they would, br- they brought us in because they said we were being too loud in the lunchroom. But the catch with that is the only people they brought in were black college students. So at I'm trying to pinpoint at what time it's considered like concerted effort, because I remember being in there. Most of the people were scared. And then the first person to speak up was this dude named Sean. Right. And um, then. Well, the second- well, 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 let me let me interrupt there quickly. You don't even need to go into like labor law proper. That's kind of what I was we were talking about before that already becomes an employment law issue right because there's a, you cannot discriminate on the basis of race under employment law all right so that's where i'm going to just interject okay. what i wanted to let's let's come back to this mm-hmm. what is the difference between labor law and employment law because laymen don't know this don't understand it and marco you you brought this distinction up and it might be important to address this and we'll come back to this once we get it clear i, I mean this is definitely not my wheelhouse i'm not a labor or an employment law attorney. Um, but generally speaking, labor is about organizing empl- you know, workers and how that can I get structured. Employment is more about the things that a, an employer cannot do in the in the scope of employment to the employees, right? Like they can't fire. So it kind of almost controls more how employers have to behave. And labor is more about how employees can kind of get together and get organized. Right. Okay. Okay. It's, it's, it's not it's not a perfect definition by any means. I, I, I think Chris can give a much better one, but that's kind of like the difference as, as a quick way of looking at it. Employment law is usually analyzing uh, cases at the individual level, and it's usually around 
Uh, again, the five original protected uh, statuses under Title VII, race, color, national origin, religion, and sex. There is also a thing called the American with Disabilities Act. There's another law called the Age Discrimination Employment Act. So those are the seven bases that uh, employers are prohibited from discriminating uh, on, those, on those seven bases. And it's usually on an individual level, although at least theoretically uh, there is uh, the possibility that you can file cases based, they're called pattern, they used to be called pattern and practice cases, where you file cases based on classes of people organized by race, gender, religion. Like, like if you have a, a, a history of sexual harassment in, in a particular workplace, right? Like if you have... I mean, and sexual harassment gets its own thing because it could be like quid pro quo or it could be hostile work environment. I mean, but then it's, you that's can pretty, kind of file for a group. Yeah, the thing with sex harassment is that that's what attorneys call fact intensive. So, so each case is different. Whereas if we simply have a thing where all the um, uh, men assembling things get paid, you know, $20, all the women assembling things get paid 19 then we mm -hmm. would have a pattern in practice and we don't have – the, the fact-intensive uh, cases like in a sex harassment case or a disability, a reasonable accommodation case and disability. So when we talk about labor law as a practical matter, we're usually talking about individuals pursuing the rights, the, trying to vindicate their rights under those statutes. When we talk about labor law— Wait, sorry. You said you meant employment law. Employment before. law. I'm sorry. Okay. So when we talk about employment law, we're generally— at an individual level of analysis, at a case, individual case level of analysis, we're talking about people vindicating their rights under those uh, statutes. For instance, not to be discriminated against on the basis of those five criteria. The five criteria and, and the ADA and the Age uh, Discrimination Employment Act. So All right. that, that's you can usually be discriminated when we say employment law. And now, for labor law, we are talking quite often about if a, a workplace is union or non-union. So in a non-union workplace, uh, in the state of Illinois, for example, we have a doctrine that's called the doctrine of at-will employment. Good, I want to talk about this. And the doctrine of at-will employment just simply says that employer is free to hire or discharge anybody at any time they so choose, as long as it's not on a prohibited basis. So a lawyer... I'm a lawyer. An employer is is uh, allowed to discharge a person for any reason or no reason, as long as that reason is not a prohibited basis. So if uh, an employer doesn't like your uh, uh, work or just prefers another person, and in the same manner as you can quit, this, this is the quid pro quo for at will employment. It's kind so of absurd. You burp, you burp at the lunch table. He doesn't like that. You're fired. Right. As long as, as I mean, long as it, you can't. It could point. be like I don't like the shirt you're wearing. Like literally, like I don't right. like black shirts. You're wearing a black shirt. Get out of here. Yeah, that's you know, at will and, and employment. The, right. The right. thing about it is that there's some. I mean, this is there is a weirdly perverse thing about look because they do say, oh, this is. This is exactly the same for both sides because you can quit whenever you want to, blah, blah, blah. But the reality of it is, is that because of the Constitution, they couldn't force you to work anyway. So it's the idea that this is establishing this sort of weird, you know, sort of, uh, what's that word? 
it's that, that the relationship is equal in this at will employment thing is nonsense because what it's really doing, it's just allowing employers to do whatever they want in terms of your employment, because you could have done that anyway, because the constitution doesn't allow slavery. Right. So there you go. You could have just quit the job anyway. Yeah. They can't hold you to, to, to work, you know, if you don't want to, yeah, to begin correct. with. So, so when we talk about at will employment, that, that, that's what we're, uh, what we're up against when we talk about um, and another way of expressing as to say, there is no employment contract or, or there actually is an employment contract because they still have to pay you whatever they said they were going to pay you. So, but it's a contract with indefinite uh, duration. So it's not like a collective bargaining agreement. So when you have a, a, a unionized workforce, you have a collective bargaining agreement and they say, from August of 2021 until August of 2026, you're going to make so much a year, and every year you'll make two percent more, or whatever. There's a duration. There's a, a term terms of contract. So when we talk about labor law um, and the the um, NLRB process we spoke of earlier, we're talking about people becoming an organization becoming what's called the exclusive bargaining agent, the exclusive bargaining representative. And when we talk about the group of employees represented, we refer to that as a bargaining unit. Okay. So we go to Jewel Food Store, the food stores here in Chicago that's organized by the United Food and Commercial Workers. The people who work at Jewel are members of a bargaining unit. And that bargaining unit uh, has designated the United Food and Commercial Workers, Local 881, to be their exclusive bargaining representative so that every four years they sit down and they negotiate a collective bargaining agreement with jewel food stores and they have to accept they have a right to vote on a contract that's um negotiated but once a majority of the people ratify that contract that they have to accept that rate of pay they can't go in the office and say i want you to pay me five dollars more than Daniel or $5 more than Thaddeus because they are bound to a collective bargaining agreement. So it's about employment contract and it finds its roots in contract law, although it's been greatly altered uh, by statute. So when we talk about labor law, we're talking about the process by which a workforce is transformed from a at-will employment environment to a collective bargaining environment. A collective bargaining agreement will usually provide for a method of processing complaints that are referred to as grievances. So it will have a grievance procedure where employees can go and initiate complaints against their employers. And those uh, process will quite often uh, terminate with a binding arbitration clause. So if, if management and labor cannot resolve a grievance for a given employee or for a given term of the um, provision of the contract, they disagree about the interpretation of the contract, they have the right to have an arbitrator hear that, and both sides are bound by the decision of the arbitrator. Most collective bargaining agreements in the modern era after the Second World War have a grievance procedure, have binding uh, arbitration, have a, a duration, have a defined duration of contract, and have provisions for wages benefits and insurance and and, uh, and and the like. So 
that's when we talk about labor law, we're usually talking about some aspect of that. Whereas when we're talking about employment law, we will much more likely be talking about an individual trying to vindicate rights, usually but not always in a non-union setting. And I should mention that people can also, and I got in a lot of trouble on uh, our little forum on this by mentioning that people can complain against the union. People can go, if people are, there are unions who do discriminate against uh, on the basis of race. There's unions that discriminate on the basis of uh, gender. There's unions that discriminate on the basis of uh, disability. And you can also use the NLRB procedure to try to correct the union's uh, um, conduct. And you can also use the Civil Rights Act to uh, correct uh, unions. So unions are are subject to all these same uh, rules, you know, internally as well as externally as against the employer. All right. So so this term at will, it's, it could be misleading. What it really means is at the will of, of the employer, of the capitalist. And, and that means you can be turned away. And my understanding is most states have this at will uh, thing. And so going through the labor, so the organizing process, which falls under labor law, that would be a process of transforming this sort of work situation from just a bunch of people, an aggregate of people like potatoes in a sack into a unit so that you can't just be let go. So that, so that it's no longer at will of the employer. Yes. And there's a due process and the grievance procedure provides that this idea of, of, uh, of due process and opportunity to be heard. They say the twin pillars of due process are notice and an opportunity to be heard. So that's what uh, that pretends to do, yeah.